This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, how flying around the world with her horse in the hold eventually led Sam Seaton to splurge one pound on a management buyout of open banking platform MoneyHub. Everyone always says, oh my God, you bought it for a pound. I said, but yes, but it was costing two million pounds a year to run. So I didn't really buy it for a pound, did I? What I bought was a two million pound debt immediately. Sam Seaton, CEO of MoneyHub, thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And uh, you're in the UK, I believe. Uh, how, how are things there? I can see it's uh, a little bit uh, brighter in the in, in the background. Uh, but in terms of life gradually getting back to normal, things are moving in the right direction? Yeah, I think we're all looking forward to coming out of lockdown, especially 21st of June is the big day here. Uh, but right now, you know, just just pleased to hear good news about the success of the vaccinations and the impact they're having but right this second, haven't actually experienced any real anti-lockdown kind of mode, if you like. So looking forward to it. Great. Uh, and Money Hub, uh, f- for those of us who aren't uh, very familiar with it, uh, perhaps you can tell us a bit more about that, what it does and, and who it's for. So Money Hub is all about helping people with their finances. And we do that at Money Hub by having a direct-to-consumer app, which is fantastic for the direct consumers. But our main our main approach is actually enabling enterprises to do that and use what we have, our product, whether it's API or white label, with their customers. And this is uh, just, uh, you know, non-financial companies or you help banks uh, do this as well? It's any company. So any company at all that wants to have a better level of engagement with their customers. So traditionally, obviously, financial services is the first kind of, I guess, wave of companies that understand what's happening with the new legislation in terms of open banking, open finance, open data. So naturally, the first, I would say, wave of clients have been from financial services, but actually we're now seeing what I would call that second wave of clients come through, which are actually not traditional financial services businesses, which is very exciting. And if I were to sign up to Money Hub and I were to use the company's services, what would I, what would I be using it for? What would it be giving me? So it's it's to put it's to keep it's to clarity and control over your money. So it gives you, you know, literally everything in one place, not just open banking, you know, investments, your pensions, the whole lot in one place. But on top of that, it also gives you insight that none of us can really be bothered worrying about. And, and I think we shouldn't be having to bother about. So for example, you know, if I asked all my friends, you know, what is your specific loan to value ratio on your property against your mortgage? I don't think many people would know. And you know, it's not that exciting to know. But as we will know on paper, if you can change mortgages to a better mortgage rate, the minute your LTV drops through a band, you've potentially saved yourself a lot of money over the course of 20 or 30 years. So it's things like that, that we try and give you that insight and that nudge or that prompt. And then on top of that, we, you know, obviously find spare cash you didn't perhaps realise you have, and we try and encourage you to do better things with it 
whether that's a rainy day fund, whether it's paying off a high interest credit card, whether it's actually investing more in your pension. It doesn't really matter, but it's pretty simple, pretty simple guidance that you can do for people automatically 24 by 7. I think it's amazing. And uh, not that you're biased, but uh, I mean, in terms of these insights, you would then help, you would then help them, let's say, you know, there's a better mortgage out there that you could apply for, you would kind of point them in the direction of where to get that you would provide that you would get a referral fee, how would it work in terms of the business model? So that's where we are an enterprise. So our D2C is completely independent. So no, we, we, we operate independently of any product providers on our D2C app. So it's purely for you to use to to be on top of your money. It doesn't mean you can't go and get you know a mortgage, but that's for you to do in that world. In our enterprise app, clearly it does bring into play all of the different enterprise options that you've got, but it's from their ecosystem. So for example, they will have partnerships with mortgage providers or they will offer mortgages themselves. So the onward journey for that LTV nudge, if, if you're with a mortgage provider, would be to, to enable a journey to help you with them as a mortgage provider. Okay. And I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, providing insights, open banking and all the things that have come along with that are, you know, there's quite a lot of players in the space. I mean, even many banks themselves are kind of moving towards providing some of the services that you've outlined. Um, so who would you highlight as your, you know, your arch rivals and uh, what sets Money Hub apart? Oh, we're, we're, we're um, I don't know if we're fortunate or unfortunate to have, I would say, three sets of rivals. <laughs> so um, because we operate uh, in a very broad way, so we have our API connectivity, so you could argue that um, we, we will go head to head with TrueLayer, uh, SaltEdge, um, Yappily, and a few of those in the API you know, arena is what I would call it. And then on top of that, we have our white label offering. So in the white label offering, we might go head to head with potentially uh, an app provider working with one of those API providers, you know, building the, the app, for example. So and also the company itself. So internal. So you often have a bit of tension with some of the enterprise partners that we've got where they actually want to outsource this, but actually internally they'd like to do it themselves. So, yeah, we end up with kind of like three sets of challenges, if you like, and it is a little bit dependent on the circumstances and who you're working with. I mean, if you're working with a bank, quite often the tension is in-house. They, they feel perhaps obliged to be doing this themselves. You know, they think, well, we should be doing this. We're a bank. So there's that tension, isn't there? Anyway, you know, obviously... Not everyone can do everything, and there's plenty of room for the competitors. I believe it's a it's a massive market. Right. And in terms of the map, I mean, what is the opportunity that you're chasing, and um, what is the kind of traction that you're getting so far? Well, if you if you think about it, every single company in the world will be a financial company in some mode in the future. So the the market for you know companies like ourselves is every company in the world. I mean, that is massive. So it's a massive market, and each of those companies will do different things. I mean, I give my Shell analogy as, a, as an example. You know, you, I don't know how many of you use the Shell app to fill up with fuel, for example, or to, to get products and services via Shell. But just that, if you look at the way they're taking payment, you know, they actually pre-authorise £100 off your card. They, you then fill up, put £60 in, off you drive, all brilliant, except you get the £40 back four days later. And as a consumer, I have no idea who Shell is using to do that, by the way. I do not. I know it's not Shell, you know, sending that payment around the roundabout and back to me. But if you think about what open banking does, just in that example, just with that 
payment initiation, Shell can take that money from my account to their account immediately. So that's just one tiny use case. And that's for Shell. And there's many others. But what I'm getting at is Shell probably doesn't even realize they can do that yet. So it's, you know, there's massive amounts to come here. Well, if they're listening, maybe they'll uh, they'll be knocking on your door. But but I mean, in terms of traction, uh, I mean, how many uh, customers have you got? What's the kind of growth that you've been experiencing? So we've had we've had we've had an, an amazing two years since we MBO'd the business, where we started with obviously zero clients. Uh, we have uh, I think just over fifty enterprise contracts now, of which we signed twenty in COVID. So we you know we had a we had a busy COVID, a busy Zoom or video conferencing year um but but it doesn't surprise me right i mean as in the shift to digital transformation the budgets that need to be made available have actually suddenly got more accessible by the by the by the companies themselves to spend on digital transformation so so we've benefited from that can you give us a sense of the number of uh, you talked about the enterprise uh, customers that you have but uh, and then the, the the consumers would be via the enterprises is that how it would work yeah so right now with our enterprise clients the reach that their customers have is about 60 to 70 million customers between them, of which some of them will be twice, if you like. So, you know, some of our enterprises will have the same customers for different reasons. One will have them as a mortgage provider. Another one will have them for their pension. So across the board, even just with the enterprise partners we have, they reach between 60 and 70 UK uh, consumers. And obviously looking back, with hindsight, you can see that COVID was was a big boost to the business. When it actually happened and things started going into lockdown, did you panic? Did you think, oh, my goodness, uh, are we going to still be around here in 12, 12 months' time? What was your feeling? Well, if I have to be really honest with you, I never thought it would last. I didn't think I'd still be sitting at my desk here at home today. And I think that's probably a good thing, isn't it? Sometimes I really think it's better you don't know what's coming. Because what you deal with is what's in front of you there and now. So, you know, first lockdown in March was, you know, getting everyone sorted to work from home. You know, you, you kind of deal with that. Your clients are dealing with that as well. Then you then you shift to this, well, what's going to happen next? And you realise everyone's got to keep going. So it's almost like a one, one foot in front of the other, isn't it? And then genuinely, you know, looking for clients that ca- can operate, I guess, you know, in effect not spending time with clients that genuinely are grappling with COVID. So, you know, I would argue it wasn't, you know, you wouldn't have gone after the restaurant trade, you know, last year. I mean, they had much bigger concerns to worry about than trying to digitally transform in terms of this offering. Not to say that they won't take advantage of open banking more broadly as they go forward, but, you know, you've got to kind of pick your battles is what I would would call it. But, But genuinely, I guess, you know, for us, COVID was certainly a positive thing. Right, so there was no no panicking at your end. There was no uh, worries. I guess if you thought it wasn't going to last this long, it wasn't something you were going to panic about anyway. No, but that's that is the point. I mean, maybe if I had known we're all going to be still sitting here, maybe I would have been in a panic. But I, I didn't. I didn't think that was the case. And then we came out of lockdown, and we went back in. And then actually, what you watched worldwide is the the, the, the world. Every country going through almost like it's like. Um, you know, the stock market, isn't it? You know, with funds, you know, some funds are up and down. You know, it's just like volatility all around the world. But also what you also saw, which is amazing, is this incredible resilience to it as a, as a world. I mean, the world kept going. Everyone kept going. You know, as a result, you know, this slight immunity 
to the volatility of the drama that was unfolding around us all, I think is the tenacity of the human being, right? It's like, it's, you know, a worldwide pandemic is not going to stop humans getting on. Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, obviously uh, things now looking up uh, more so and uh, certainly I guess the stock market, you know, just uh, paused very briefly and then has, uh, has, has not looked back since. In terms of you as CEO, you know, CEOs are notoriously uh, hardworking and uh, perhaps uh, don't have the best or optimal work-life balance at the best of times. Uh, did COVID improve matters because you were working from home? Did it make it harder because you could basically work 24 hours a day? How was it for you from a, on a personal level? So I think, you know, for, for me, um, when you start a business from nothing, you know, in terms of, you know, you start from zero revenue, zero clients, I think you have to accept you've got to be willing to be all in as the CEO. And look, maybe maybe there are people out there who, who can do it a different way and I would be incredibly admiring of them because for me personally, you know, there's, there's patches and, you know, COVID was definitely one where it's just roll your sleeves up and it's all in. And, and that is at the expense of things you, will, you might want to be doing. So this, what is it, balance that you want in your life? I think as a in a startup business, I think you have to accept that not permanently, but a lot of the time the balance is unbalanced, like it's out of control. Right. And, I'm, and I don't have a problem with that. And I think balancing is something that uh, you've traditionally done pretty well because uh, back in the day you were you were a professional show jumper. Is that right? Uh, event rider, yes. Event, event rider. Sorry, this shows my equine ignorance. Uh, <laughs> What, what's, what's the difference between uh, tell us show jumping and, and, and event eventing to start with? So event, eventing is uh, all round, but it's cross country. So you do dressage, cross country, and show jumping. Lowest score at the end of the day wins. Show jumping is show jumping, and dressage is dressage, and they are three different sports in themselves, and of course, three different types of horses that are appropriate to each, as you can imagine, like a triathlon right. versus a you know what is it pole vaulter. I mean. Okay, well, thanks for clarifying that. But obviously, very different from being CEO of a, of a fintech. So, uh, tell us about that aspect of your career. I guess that was perhaps your ambition when you were when you were growing up, and you kind of got to a very high point. Tell me about how you got into that, how you did, and and how and why you came out of it. I think uh, for anyone that knows about horses, uh, it's like an addiction. It's a much healthier addiction than heroin. That's how I would put it, but it's got the same thing. It's a H for horses rather than a H for heroin. So, you know, I'm probably grateful that it was a, an addiction to horses, right? But but it's in it's in you. I mean, it was in me from when I, I mean, I wasn't born into a horsey family, but uh, but if you actually, my cousin did our, what is it, uh, genes, and apparently our genes do go back to Ireland. So, you know, which is an incredibly horse-orientated country, as you, you probably know. So I, I was, you know, much to my mum and dad's horror, you know, just kept pestering for a horse as a child and uh, eventually they gave in and and so I, I was very very lucky to to be in a place in Australia where we could have horses at home so it's much easier in Australia than perhaps in the UK to do that with a child that's uh that's a bit you know of an outlier and um and so I rode all you know my horses when I was at school but what really happened that kind of probably set me you know apart is that one of the horses I I bought myself for 300 Australian dollars off the racetrack uh, that it was a failed racehorse, ex-racehorse, um, happened to be an incredible, incredible event horse, which 
you know, together, we went from, you know, age, you know, I was age 16, you know, with that horse, you know, to the very top level of eventing. And, and that probably doesn't always happen. But, you know, at the, on that journey, um, the Australian Equestrian Federation said that to be selected for a team, you have to have competed internationally, not permanently, but you have to have, you know, you will not be picked without having competed internationally. So at that point, I thought, well, that's not going to happen, is it? You know, flying a horse to, you know, the US or the UK, Sounds, sounded ridiculous to me. But I, I had just got married, actually, and my husband said to me, when you're 80 years of age, do you want to think about the things you have done or the things you could have done? And I thought, he's absolutely right. I mean, why, why wouldn't you fly a horse to the UK? I mean, you know, it's an opportunity of a lifetime that I've got. So that's exactly what we did. So we picked up. So, so sorry, how do you fly a horse? So they, 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 they don't get a seat. <laughs> But they go into a container, which is in the uh, in the hold, you know, as in, I mean, ironically, we were next to, we were next to stockings, you know, ladies' tights. So we had 15 horses on our plane, along with crates of ladies' stockings, which I found quite amusing because it was like, who would have thought that, right? So anyway, 15 horses in our plane um, in like what I would call, the, is the best way to describe it is like a crate, which they have their space in the crate. And we flew from Melbourne. Uh, to Hong Kong can you can you imagine I was in the actual cockpit when we landed in Hong Kong on the old airport where you literally nearly ran into the water and then we went to Bahrain after that and eventually to Gatwick in, in the UK which when we came off the plane that was the other bit that was hilarious I was absolutely knackered by the way we'd been 48 hours you know end-to-end journey and uh, I didn't really sleep it was all quite stressful as you can imagine and and then we get onto the uh, M25 and it's like 6 30 in the morning and and it's just solid traffic. I mean, it literally. So I thought there'd been a major accident. So I'm talking to the lorry driver and he said, oh, no, this is what it's like every day. I thought to myself, what have I done? What have, I thought, what am I, like, this place is bonkers. 6.30 in the morning, four lanes of traffic, not moving. <laughs> Welcome to London. And so, uh, but, but I mean, you, you carried on with the uh, uh, Australian team and, and I mean, you were, did you make it to the Olympics? So, no. So, so, so I made it into the squad of 12 for the London 2000 um, uh, Olympics, you know, for, for that, for the, sorry, for the Sydney 2000 Olympics in, in, in 2000. I made it into that squad and I, I obviously competed around Europe with that squad. I probably got to about eighth on the list, five go. So I didn't get into the top five. It was was awful wishing that more of your friends would go by the wayside so you could get a spot. I mean, all of that is quite tricky, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't not want to have done that for the world. It was an amazing experience competing on the European American circuit, and also all the support you get, which I'm pretty sure I still draw on today. So the the sports psychology of how to to compete at that top level, deal with your nerves, yeah, you know how you get into the zone, how you stay in the zone. You know, all of that, if you think about it, from the top sports, you know, you know, I guess funding that Australian sport can provide. And I had that for four years. So, you know, I do I do genuinely treasure that time for lots of different reasons. Right. And uh, one of our previous guests on the podcast, Al Lukies from Pollinate, he, he told me he realised professional rugby was, was no longer for him after having his knees crushed. Uh, so what was it that, I, I mean, presumably it wasn't just the sight of the M25 at 6.30 in the morning being blocked up, but what was it finally that made you think, okay, I've done that. This isn't going to work out. Uh, I'm going to do something else. 
So I think I think what you realise is when I didn't, I mean, it's pretty soul-destroying to work hard for something and then not achieve it. So, you know, it's, it's that's pretty hard to take. It's also a realisation that you're very, very dependent on the, on the level of operation that your horse works at. So this is not just something that's within my control. And so I realised that, you know, my horse for the next four years is going to probably need to be a different horse. And then, and then I realised that actually having, you know, ridden actually with Mark Todd and Andrew Nicholson, one of the things Andrew Nicholson said to me stuck in my head. He said, Sam, you need to have 30 horses. You need to ride the top 10. And he said, and when one of them breaks, you know, as in goes lame or needs to be put out in the field to rest because it's got injuries, you know, you pick from the, from the 20 that are being worked, you know, next level down, you pick the best one from the 20. So you ride the top 10 horses all the time. That's how you make it in this sport. And I thought, I don't want to ride. I don't want to run a yard of 30 horses. I don't want to ride the 10. And I thought it's too much of a, I love, I am too much of a, um, how do you put it? Like it, it was always a hobby. It was always something I absolutely loved. It's suddenly, for me, that's a business. And I thought, you know what? I, I, I don't want to do that as a business. So back to my computer science degree, back, back to the day job, if you like, and, and actually still ride all the time. But it is a hobby and I love it. Okay, we're going to come back to Sam's story in just a moment. Uh, but just to remind you that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. In this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. Dot com. So Sam, uh, you've we've done the eventing, you've gone back to university, you've graduated, and then you joined, is it Willis Towers Watson, is that right, as a consultant? Yes, I did my degree before I went eventing, so that, that, was, that was good to have, I guess, have that to fall back on when I decided I wasn't going to run an eventing yard. And I was able to work part-time for Willis Towers Watson actually towards the tail end of my, um, you know, competing in Europe. Which was, which was very fortunate. In fact, I had a very, very, I would say, progressive boss who I remember saying to me, I don't care where you do your work. I don't care if you do it on the back of your horse, just get the work done. And, and for, for around 99, that would have been 2000, that, that I think was quite progressive. You know, we would say that now to, to lots of people, but that was, that's, 20, that's over 20 years ago. So, yeah, so very fortunate and loved my time at, um, at Towers Parent as, as it was when I, when I was there, I mean, it's obviously uh, gone on to be Towers Watson and now Willis Towers Watson, but genuinely loved it. Very bright people, very collaborative approach to, to and very client-centric. So all about how do you deliver great outcomes for, for your client. So I kind of say I grew up with that methodology and and the only thing that really stuck or jarred, if you like, on that journey was how financial financial products were taken to market, how they're manufactured and taken to, to market, slightly stuck with me because I, I thought consumers can't really easily understand them. The, the way they're manufactured and the way they're taken to market makes it almost impossible for, for the layperson to really understand what they're buying. And that didn't sit well with me because it's your money, isn't it? You're, you know, you're either, you know, paying off a mortgage or you're you know, investing in a product or saving with something, and yet you have you have you don't really know how it works or, or what it does or what might go wrong or what could go really right as well. You know, you just don't know. 
And, and that didn't sit well with me. Uh, so all, all of the way through my career, getting closer to being able to help the consumer has been something that's pretty fundamental to me, which is why I'm really enjoying where I am now. Well, uh, but you, you were at Willis Towers for, for quite some time, I think. Um, and then you, and then where did you go from there? And kind of tell me about how you kind of washed up at Money Hub and what happened along the way. So I had the opportunity to MBO a business from Willis Towers Watson. So when Towers Parent merged with Watson Wyatt, uh, we had the opportunity to take a business that we'd grown within, within Towers Parent called eValue, which is a stochastic forecasting business in terms of taking risk and return to the consumer in a way that they can understand it and, and the impact it can have on them and their money. So we I, I, we MBO'd that business in 2011 and I said I would do that for five years and I did do that for five years and then wanted to do more than stochastic forecasting because although stochastic forecasting is amazing and uh, some of your listeners are probably thinking I've already switched off, which by the way, I forgive them because... Because at dinner parties, when I worked at eValue, I dreaded the con- I dreaded the. So what do you do? And on occasion, I have to admit to, to lying because the minute you say, "Oh, I run a stochastic forecasting business," you can you can just see the fact that they wish they hadn't asked you. But on the other hand, Sam, surely, I mean, if there was someone you didn't actually want to speak to, you could just say to them, "I do stochastic forecasting," and then they'd say, "Okay, thanks very much," and then they'd leave oh, you alone. <laughs> exactly. So. So it, it, it could work in equal measures, but yes. So anyway, so after five years, but to be fair, I wanted to do more than just that. So after five years, I had the opportunity to go to Momentum, who owned Money Hub outright. Momentum had bought Money Hub outright when it won Finnovate 2014. And they wanted to use Money Hub to underpin their enterprise you know, business, which is an insurance business that does everything, like Aviva, uh, you know, like a lot of businesses where they start with one thing but end up doing everything for the, for the consumer in terms of financial services and products. And they really wanted to actually, you know, I guess, in effect, compete with the vitalities of this world about really genuinely taking what they do all into the consumer. So, but unfortunately for Momentum, they hit some rocky roads in terms of the South African political environment, the, the economic climate, and building that business in the UK wasn't sustainable. So everything non-core, not just Money Hub, but everything non-core to their South African business had to go in 2017. And that's when I said, well, I will, I will buy Money Hub. I mean, you cannot put Money Hub in the bin. But open banking arrives in January 2018. This platform is set up for open finance, not just open banking, but we're all ready. And the world, the world, the market is coming this way. So there was no way Money Hub was going in the bin. And how much did it cost to buy it? Did you have to raise funds in order to do so? And if so, how did you go about that? I, I don't know if the process is similar to raising money from VCs or if it's easier because it's already a business that's already kind of established. Well, I, I actually think now that I know more about it, I think it's harder. Because what because your MBO, it's fine if you MBO a business that's up and running and revenue product producing and, and has a PL and some track record. But I was buying a business that had no track record and, and ha- actually hadn't been in the market because obviously momentum were building it for use by themselves. So there wasn't any revenue, there, there wasn't that concept, if you like. So I actually think I made life very difficult for myself because I MBO'd a business with no revenue and no traction and genuinely into a market that was still very early. 
But it's going back to an earlier point we made in this in this uh, podcast, if you like, is I think it's good that you don't know that. I think it's good I didn't know that because I think sometimes if you knew what was coming, you wouldn't do it. So yeah, so I blissfully unaware. Me all in with Money Hub, thinking it's brilliant. It's going to be easy to get investment, isn't it? I mean, a piece of cake. Why wouldn't you want to invest in Money Hub? <laughs> so that was a journey I've been on, which is has been I I would argue has been a definite learning curve for me. And how much? How much did? Uh, can you say how much uh, you bought the business for, and what you managed to raise for it? Yeah, so we bought the business for a pound, and then I had to raise <laughs> money, you know, to fund it. So. So it wasn't the buying of the business that was tricky. It's actually raising the money to keep it going. So, you know, everyone always says, oh, my God, you bought it for a pound. I said, but yes, but it was costing £2 million a year to run. So I didn't really buy it for a pound, did I? What I bought was a £2 million debt immediately, uh, you know, in effect. And so and suddenly you've got people that are paying their mortgages and their lives, and you're responsible for all of that overnight. And I think it's really good sometimes that you don't think about all of that. And so after you had bought the business for a pound, presumably it was more or less simultaneously, uh, you went to VCs and the like, uh, investors to, to raise funds. Were they receptive? Uh, did they say, don't be ridiculous? Uh, was, was it a, a relatively simple process? And, and what, what was it that you ended up raising in the end? So on our, I would call it like a seed round, you know, in terms of getting going and covering your, you know, getting to enable you to get up and running. It was a really interesting journey because we had no clients and no revenue. So, you know, the VC world and, and and more so with private equity, I mean, to be fair, they didn't want to know about it. You know, you, you know so so I, I actually was left with my own, I guess, connections, my own network. And so friend, it is friends and family that you will draw on. I, I would I would I would advocate that to anyone. You know, you're going to you're going to need to draw on your friends and family to find that early funding. Uh, you might be able to bring in some other funding, you know, as a result of that. But genuinely, you're going to draw on your your own network, which was fine. We, that is that is exactly what I did. So you know, we raised two point eight five million, which is what I wanted to raise. That's exactly what I wanted. I didn't want any more than that. Um, and actually, one of the things that was was really beneficial for me in that in that is that uh, Nationwide Ventures took a ten percent stake. So they took ten percent of that two point eight five million, which was brilliant. Okay, forgive me. This is this is part of Nationwide, is it? Or yeah, it's a Nationwide Building Society. So their nationwide commercial ventures team they had just set up, uh, they they were very keen to invest in Money Hub for two reasons. One, they could see the direction of travel in terms of what was happening in this area and also wanted to be able to explore in their own business. And what better way to do that than to invest in some of the fintechs that are doing that kind of more forward-thinking mode of operation. So that's exactly what they did. So they invested in eight businesses, of which we were one. And, I, you know, that was... I think that was incredibly confidence-giving for the team, for the business, for the other investors that had come in. So that was a great start, to be fair. And uh, it's interesting, a lot of the people we have on the show are founders and CEOs, often co-founders. I know on your LinkedIn profile, for example, you don't put yourself down as the founder because the business was already there. But you, as you say, you led the MBO of the company and your CEO. Do you get treated differently? Does it feel any different? Do you think being just the CEO and the, the person that bought the business as opposed to the person that created it from scratch? No, I don't think you, I don't, I don't know. I don't think there's any difference because it's, 
money helps stool your baby, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's like it's no different. I think that must be like, do you get, I guess that'd be like, are you any different when you adopt a child? Does anyone treat you differently? Well, maybe if they know, I, I suspect most people just think we came up with money. But I suspect they actually don't realise because the way you treat the child is no different whether you adopted it or not. You know, it's it's your it's your baby, right? You want to treat the child well. You know, you're going to, you, you know, you're going to, you know, like I said, you're all in. It's like it's no, that that isn't any different. Right. Good. I good analogy. Very, I think it's very different uh, if you don't own part of the business. I think. That is the, that to me is the difference. So if you're an employee and you have zero shares, no stake, no skin in the game, that is when you feel different. Then you do feel like an employee. I, I genuinely believe that. I've been there. I've done. You know, I've been an employee. Right, and I suppose as someone who actually bought the business along with you know, and then got the investment subsequently, that perhaps you even feel that you have more skin in the game because. I assume, and I may be wrong on this, that you own a larger chunk than many founders do of their companies once they've raised VC funding. Yeah, so I think that, that is that is probably true. I'm, I'm not, you know what? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to disagree with that. I think any founder or any owner of a business is going to just be. I, I really think, it, yeah, I don't think the percentage that they own is going to affect them. To be, to be fair. Okay, and you know, you are uh, again. Uh, forgive me for pointing out the obvious, you're obviously a, a female fintech CEO and there aren't many of those around and there should obviously be more. Do, do, you, do you feel any additional pressure from investors, from customers or anything uh, as a result? Did you feel that you're treated any differently? Uh, so customers, clients and that world, I think is much easier. I think that is, that it's not as obvious, the unconscious bias, which is probably there to be fair. Uh, in the VC private equity world, it is it is not only obvious, but it is still very much more difficult for women to get funding than men. And and I don't think it's done on purpose. So I'm not saying that. You know, it's just that world is still very much, dare I say it, a man's world. So you know, you enter the lion's den, you know, and it's it's tricky. And to make it level the playing field in terms of female founders, CEOs raising funds. Uh, one would need more female members of private equity firms and VC uh, funds. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the irony isn't lost on me that, you know, I would, I, would, I would invest more in women-led businesses and founders because they have to work so much harder to get whatever they get. So I just think you get more for your buck. So if I was a VC, I, would be, I don't know why they don't do more of that because you're going to get more for your money because – it is harder to get, so it, you make it last longer, go further. You do more with it because you not because not because you're brilliant, but because you absolutely have to. You have no choice, right? And I guess you know one could extend that to uh, members of other minorities who are underrepresented as uh, founders and CEOs. What what practical steps? Because I know there are various initiatives out there, um, whether it's uh, I think High Founders or whether it's uh, the Twenty Percent Club, uh, trying to you know get more. Uh, female founders out there and more female CEOs. What what more needs to be done? Does 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 there need to be legislation or something? I would have said, I would have said so. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't a big fan of legislation all through my career. It's really only now I think when you step back a little bit more and you see it from a slightly different angle, and you realise that uh, I think the stats are that it will be three hundred years before we're equal. It's like it just is too long, isn't it? I mean, what? Do we really need to wait 300 years? It was ridiculous. Can we just legislate and get on with it, make it happen a bit quicker? Yeah, hopefully we won't have to wait that long. And Sam, a lot of the fintech founders we've had on the show, they talk about the additional appeal of 
it allowing them to avoid becoming accountants or go back to their jobs as as lawyers as if that's an extra incentive to make their fintechs a success. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't an entrepreneur? I definitely think I'd be a consultant. You know, I, I, I grew up in, in Towers Parent, if you like. I, I think that's where I, I would, would have gone naturally if, if I wasn't this. In fact, in fact, it's, you know, it's something that you do think about. You know, you think, you know, should, you know, should I have you know, done those different points in your career, isn't it, when you think about that? But I think that's, that would have always been where I, I, I kind of went back to, if you like. Okay. And this is a question I ask everyone uh, at the end of the podcast. And I know we've already discussed flying in a plane with a horse, which I guess counts as pretty crazy. But the question is this, what is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? And it doesn't have to be related to fintech or uh, your business uh, life. Well, I did touch on it before. I, I do I do have to say that flight, you know, I, I, I've never left Australia, you know, before I got on that flight with the, with my horse. So you know, to be to be in the cockpit flying into Hong Kong, and actually, I, I don't know if you know, but I had my foot on the brake when we were on taxi because I could see the water and I couldn't see how the plane stopped in time. And, and clearly, it did. but 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 it was but it, genuinely at that point, um, and then and then it, that was backed up by when I got here with the uh, the Gatwick and the four lanes of traffic, and then my first visit to London. When you know the IRA blew up a, a, a pub not far from where I was, and I thought I did think to myself, "Oh, what have I done?" I mean, this is this is bonkers. Well, uh, I think you're definitely the first and probably the last um, fintech CEO that uh, we're going to have on the show that's uh, gone in a plane with a horse. Uh, so thank you for sharing that story and really appreciate your sharing your, your insights and your thoughts and, and more details about Money Hub and uh, wish you the best of luck going forward. So Sam Seaton, CEO of Money Hub, thanks so much for joining us on the Fintech podcast. Thanks very much. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how varied are the lives of fintech founders we've had on the podcast, including cheesemakers, Liberis, professional rugby players, Pollinate, and now elite horse riders. Technically, of course, Sam didn't found Money Hub, but as she points out, whether you create a baby or adopt one, it's still your baby, and you still love it and put everything you've got into making it a success. So thank you, Sam Seaton, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at ParisFinForum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.